Welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. The political climate in Alberta, it's a, it's a fascinating beast these days. We're seeing things happen that probably we wouldn't have expected to see happen in the last 20, 30 years. you got to go all the way back to the Bible Bill days to really kind of get to the kind of controversy that we're seeing generated. And in order to do a little bit of a political gut check, there's a lot of people who are saying things have gotten really out of control, particularly in the last year, two years. But is that just hyperbole? We figured we'd go to somebody who's been playing in the Alberta political scene for more than a little while. And it's a, it's a, I'm still so happy that, uh, that he said yes to, to come on the show. It is a genuine privilege to welcome to the show the Honorable, I'm using the honorific, Thomas Lukasik. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So... To get started, before we get into sort of the, the meatier topics of what I'm hoping that we can talk about today, if you could give uh, just a, a brief, I mean, and it's hard to do brief when, you know, 14 years in the legislature, but if you could give a, a brief bio and sort of explain to anybody who's not familiar with sort of your, your body of work, as it were, who is Thomas Lukasik? Well, from a political perspective, um, you know, I, I got first elected in 2001, and um, and I wasn't planning to run for office, believe it or not. I was involved at the constituency association grassroots level. And, and all of a sudden, a Premier Klein actually called me um, and, and suggested that I run for office. Um, as a young guy at that point in time, uh, Ralph Klein was bigger than life in Alberta. I was honored. And I thought about it. Uh, I just started a new business then. I was just uh, fairly newly married then. It didn't sort of... It wasn't something that was ever in my in my plans, but I thought, you know what, if the premier asks you, you, you just do it. That, that's all there is to it. Um, so I did, and I was lucky. I, I won the first election. And then the second election uh, in 2004, it was the famous landslide Lukasik. There was a recount. I, I lost by three votes and won by five votes in a, in a recount. We lost all PC seats in, in Edmonton. Uh, running as a PC in Edmonton was never easy. Uh, people will often say, well, you run for PCs because you wanted to win. In Edmonton, <clears throat> you didn't run for PCs to win because usually all of Edmonton was either NDP or Liberal and NDP. Um, but in 2004, we lost uh, all the seats other than uh, Gene Zbosdeski and David Hancock and then myself. Um, and then a subsequent uh, couple of elections and, and, and lost in, in 2015 uh, when most of us uh, lost. I was privileged to be in cabinet for a number of years, um, education, advanced education, labor, immigration, uh, and then ultimately deputy premier uh, portfolios. Um, you know, it's an honor. It's been an honor uh, to serve. Uh, I'm glad I'm not there anymore. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I think there's a reason why they call it serving terms, because sometimes it, it, it Think of it as an incarceration in a way when you look back. Um, but it, it has been an honor. And uh, and now I, I sort of, I can't say I enjoy, but but I, I spend time um, watching what's going on in the province and, and definitely being maybe more vocal than some would wish in, in social media on, on current events. 2015 was sort of a 
pivotal year in Alberta politics, I think it's safe to say, not only because it saw the end of a 44-year dynasty for the, the ruling Conservative Party, but it also saw some pretty major seismic shifts exist inside of the, the Conservative uh, universe. So we saw the, the beginning of the, the end or the, uh, evolution for the PCs and the Wild Rose. What was your sense in 2015 of where things were going to go? Would you have predicted that they've gone to, or would you have anticipated that they, they've gone to where we are today? No, uh, that election in 2015 was, was very interesting. As you know, I ran for leadership just prior to that against uh, Jim Prentice. Uh, so I thought I had a pretty good finger on the pulse because I traveled the province for three months straight. Uh, there wasn't a town or village or city that I didn't visit. Um, and, and I already then knew that there are issues, um, without a doubt. And, and it was, and the issues were, um, people were, were getting tired of PC, but there was a definite sense of entitlement, uh, within the PC party and not only among elected members, I would even argue less so among, among the elected members, but within the machinery of the party, the kingmakers, you know the, the the lobbyists and the consultants and 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 the money behind the party. Um, they simply expected to win elections, and and for them it was a business proposition uh, because that's how they were making money, and and it was becoming more and more uh, visible. Uh, and then Prentice becomes a premier, and even though um, it, you know it was a very interesting leadership race, uh, that one didn't get investigated by RCMP. Perhaps it could have as well. There was some. Funny stuff, but but not to say that he didn't win. He would have won, I think, no matter what. He he was well received by the party, but not well received by Albertans. Um, he even though he was an Alberta MP from Calgary for a number of years prior, he just didn't have that that magic touch, um, and he didn't resonate with Albertans very well. His um, comment, look in the mirror. Uh, was probably something that that solidified Albertans' feelings about Prentice. So as I was door knocking in that 2015 campaign, um, I knew uh, that this is not just another Castle Downs campaign because I door knocked those doors over and over for years and I was getting a, a different reception. And it was often, Thomas, we like you, you've done a good job, but I can't vote for you this time around because, and, and they would have a reason uh, why they couldn't. Um, it, it was um, it was the beginning of the end. We we knew it was going to come. But you know what was the most interesting thing? I'll never forget that uh, we would have um, telephone calls with with, Pre with Premier Prentice and and all these candidates and, and MLAs uh, would be reporting to him during the campaign. How are things in their own writings? And everybody was telling Prentice, "Oh, things are great. People love us. We're going to win." And I I thought to myself, you know, unless my writing is so unique. Um, I don't think we're going to win. And I remember actually saying that on the phone call and everybody was incensed that, you know, how dare you say that we're not winning? Um, there was this uh, hesitation within the PC party to even admit the possibility of losing an election. And, and I think a lot of people were really shocked that evening. And, and then Prentice, as you remember, just walked off the stage and was never to be seen again as a leader of the party. Where did you, where, where did you land after 2015? I went into private sector. You know, I always uh, I was a teacher for for a while, uh, and but uh, I worked for seven over seven years for myself. I had a company that represented injured workers uh, with their contentious WCB claims um, uh, for a number of years. So after that, uh, I went into private sector. 
Um, I started a construction company that I'm no longer involved with. I passed it on. And, and now um, in, in finance, uh, my company provides uh, financing to, to Canadian Muslims who cannot deal with conventional banks for rel- religious reasons. So we provide what's known as uh, halal financing mortgages. Um, so um, haven't been involved politically at all other than through commentaries. And and believe it or not, uh, last, I believe it was Sunday, for our first time since 2015, I door knocked. We're going to get to that in a bit. I don't want to, I mean, I think everybody knows anyways, but I want, I want, to, I want to get to how you, you did the door knocking. But I still want to sort of walk through a, a little bit more history. 2015 to 2017 saw some major, major changes for the conservative movement in Alberta. We saw the the uh, arrival, return, I'm not sure what the right word is to use, of Mr. Kenny. And he brought with him his plan to unite the right. What were your impressions when Mr. Kenny announced that he was going to run for the leadership of both parties and motion both together? Well, I quite publicly ripped up my PC membership there. Uh, and, and I believe I, I tweeted it out. It ended up in a, in a trash can, can in a, on a street of, of Calgary. Um, To me, it was unacceptable uh, for a number of reasons. Um, Number one, um, in my mind, uh, Mr. Kenny could never be a leader of a PC party. He was never a PC supporter. As a matter of fact, as a member of parliament, uh, he worked overtime to make sure that our PC government would lose uh, in Alberta. He was a Wild Rose supporter or or any other French right-wing party supporter working very hard against us. Um, very critical of Ralph Klein um, and, and any subsequent premier. So he was definitely not an ally of the party. Uh, second of all, his views were, were um, you know, where even though we had cabinet ministers who would share his views, but they were sort of on the right fringe within our cabinet, uh, but they were not reflective of, of the rank and file party members. Plus, as you know, I, I had a unique way of knowing Kenny and everybody remembers the fact that he called me an a-hole. Um, and um, and that will probably go into history. But the fact is that there was a reason why why this issue arose, and it was he was a minister of immigration at the same time when I was a minister of immigration, um, and and um, there was a one particular file where we had a a woman who who was working as a temporary foreign worker at McDonald's got hit by a car when she was riding a bicycle to work and became quadriplegic, and he insisted on deporting her to Philippines. Um, where all medical doctors in Canada were saying, if you send her there, she will definitely die because uh, she may not even survive the flight. Never mind, there, there is no adequate medical care to treat this woman. And, and his uh, answer was, what don't you understand about temporary and worker? Um, she's not a worker, so she has to leave. A um, uh, few lawyers in Edmonton and I, we launched a, a lawyer's work pro bono, uh, a challenge to the federal court, and we won. And she is an Edmonton, and believe it or not, she's recovered and employed. And that gave me a sort of an insight into Jason Kenny, who he really is as, as an individual. So I worked overtime um, to, to try to oppose, you know, that, that, that momentum that he had behind him to unite the party. Um, but he succeeded. And, and this, you know, this, this also showed me another issue uh, within the Conservative Party is that the only thing that united the PC party really was winning. Uh, this was a, a coalition to win, because when you looked at our caucus very often, you had guys like David Hancock, myself, Doug Griffiths, uh, Ed Stelmack, 
who who would be centrists, sometimes even center left, with guys like Ted Morton, uh, Lloyd Snellgrove, um, you know, and and Marianne Jablonski, who are ultra right wingers, both from a social and, and 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 any other perspective. But what kept that caucus together was that this was a formula for winning, and it worked for forty four years, uh, and we always found some kind of a compromise. Well. Once those parties split into Wildrose and PC, uh, there was no way to put this Humpty Dumpty back together again. And and Kenny did it, but he really didn't. He thought he did, but look where we are right now. Um, you know, he he thought this would be a formula for winning, but what he didn't realize is that you know when you sleep with dogs, you get fleas, and and he welcomed everybody into this tent, and and now those fleas are biting them. I'm I'm. Curious. I mean, you, one of the conversations, and you kind of hit on the nail on the head right there. One of the conversations that more and more people seem to be having is, what does it even mean to be conservative in the the province of Alberta? Because there have been historically all of the 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 forty one different flavors of conservatism that exist. Why do you think it was that that it was was it just the winning? Why do you think they were able to at least publicly, peacefully coexist for the most part? And now we're, we're seeing a whole different thing. We were lucky in the PC caucus because we, because we wanted to win, uh, we were motivated to compromise. So we had some ugly caucus meetings where, where we would really battle it out. And, and, and believe it or not, grown men would cry um, over issues. But then the agreement was at the end, you don't always get it your way. Here is a compromise, um, and this will be our policy. And, and that policy satisfied most, most of the time enough to win the next election. Uh, it was never perhaps ideal, but it was, it was a satisfactory um, a compromise. And, and that was sort of that was the, the magic sauce that, that we had within the PC caucus. Um, now this compromise doesn't exist. The UCP caucus doesn't have Dave Hancocks and Stelmax and myself and Griffiths in it. Um, so there is no compromising. You know, those whom I would be arguing against in caucus are now the government uh, without any uh, uh, without any tempering um, of of their of their policies. So um, th- that is that is the difference uh, between uh, you know that particular PC party and uh, and what you have right now in UCP. One of the other one of the other things that I wanted to sort of historically get your your take on is, I mean, I have been paying attention to politics for a little while now, um, but it wasn't really until 2015, 2016 that I started to really closely pay attention. Um, and one of the things that I that seemed to strike me about when Mr. Kenny took office as premier was, and there's no question that he had some political uh, goals that I find disagreeable. I'll say in order to be polite, uh, the Bill Aid is an excellent example of of that. Super gross, um, but you can sort of set aside, I think, to some degree. There was the political side that was gross, but there was also this other side. And this other side seemed to be almost an open contempt within his caucus for not just the processes of governing, but the the building itself. Like I remember in in 2019 when they when the when the poster went up in the windows of the legislature. And I think most people who pay attention to politics went, wow, that's offside. 
and it's, I guess the question that I have is, was that unprecedented? Did you see earplugs being handed out in the legislature during your time there? Did you see people uh, engaging in that sort of theatrics and, and lack of decorum? No, you know, there always was a component of lack of decorum. When when you're dealing with people, you will always find up, you know, find few individuals. But it wasn't systematic. Uh, it wasn't institutionalized. Like it 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 started with Kenny, and we still see it uh, see it now. Um, there was certain reverence uh, with respect to the legislature building. People were honored to be in that building. Um, it was sort of the the, the cathedral to to democracy um, that appears to be to be gone, but it has to do with populism. See, populism part of populism is undermining democratic institutions um, and 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 trying to discredit democratic institutions, courts, policing, CBC, um, anything that 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 stands for for what they would call establishment. And and when you weaken democratic institutions, um, it's easier to bring anarchy into play, um, and it's easier to uh, uh, to play up the discontent of of, of the masses. You know, um, it's not a new formula. Um, you know, French Revolution was based on that. Um, Hitler's rising to power in 1932 was based on that. Trump was based on that. Brexit was based on that. But ultimately, it becomes a scenario of a dog chasing a car. You know, dog will chase a car and bark at it. But once it finally catches up to the car, the dog doesn't know what to do with that car, right? They have the same problem. They they try, they bark, uh, they make a lot of noise. They, they try to get people angry. And when it works and they win power, they have no idea what to do with it. You know, they fumble. Kenny fumbled. Trump fumbled. And look what Danielle Smith is doing right now. Because they're attracting the wrong people. They're attracting what I call team angry uh, into their caucus. But those are not people who, A, have any respect for the office that they have just won. And B, they honestly don't understand what is the role of that office and, and, and how to handle the authority that has been granted to them by, by voters, by Albertans. Um, so you end up with the bizarre situations that you have right now. Um you know, we are in the midst of a of a of a populist wave, and and the wave works um, in such a way. Uh, aspiring politician like the leader of the Federal Conservative Party says to you, uh, "You're a good guy. You work really hard. Nobody ever listened to you. Uh, teachers always called it you. Uh, your boss is never happy with you, um, but you're a good guy." And that shouldn't be happening. Actually, all those teachers and everybody with any credentials are wrong. You're the guy who actually was right all the time. Well, this guy says, well, finally, somebody's listening to me. Somebody finally understands me. And, and then the leader says, and you should be even more angry. And, and your enemies, and there's always an external enemy. You know, for Trump, it was Mexicans. For, for Brexit, it was Poles and Ukrainians and others supposedly still stealing their jobs. For, for Hitler, it was Jews. Um, uh, for, for Danielle Smith and Kenny, it's Ottawa or, or liberals. It doesn't frankly matter who's in Ottawa, as long as it's, it's Ottawa. There has to be an external enemy. And then you argue, and I am the guy, I am the only guy who will defend you against those external forces. It's sort of like a, um, like a, you know, castle under siege. 
um, and, and I am your savior. Um, and, and it's a formula that, that allows for wins. The problem is that once they win, as I said earlier, that group of people cannot um, execute uh, with any dignity or, or even effectiveness um, the, the, the roles that they have been assigned. Yeah, it's, I mean, one of the things that I keep going back to um, with the, the populism piece and the, oh, shucks, I'm just like you, uh, we see with Smith and her health spending accounts. She goes on over and over and over again about how, well, you know, the politicians, they get a health spending account, so why don't you? And it follows that formula almost perfectly, but every time she says it, there's a part of me that goes, how are there not more people saying you're one of them, though. Like you get that you're the po- you're a politician, Danielle. Like it's it's and I, and there's certainly uh, uh, UCP MLAs who quite candidly will say uh, there's there's a certain one whose name might rhyme with Payne Metzen who openly says I'm not a politician. Yeah, you are, dude. <laughs> But they're very, very good at disabusing the the public of the notion that they are part of the machine that they're simultaneously saying people should get angry at. And and you know, and, and oddly enough, people are buying it and 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 they speak to government in in second person, you know, uh, as if they are not government. And and frankly, you know, you could be in government tomorrow, I could be in government tomorrow, run for office, and you can be in government. Government is not some external power that is imposed on you. You go out and vote, and you will decide who the government will be. But they they uh, refer to public institutions as the forces of oppression, um, and 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 you need to fight against that that oppression. And even though they are actually, like you mentioned, quite quite astutely, they are part of the machine, but they try to portray themselves as as sort of insiders who can defend you against the machine. You know, they they need a struggle. Um, they always need their potential supporter to feel that that he or she is somehow oppressed by the machine, and and they will um, they will save you from it. It's bizarre. It's it's illogical, uh, but it's easy to explain. You know, Mr. Poliev over the last few days is really harping at CBC uh, that it's government owned broadcaster. Well, it always was. It didn't bother anybody when Harper was the prime minister and CBC was government funded. Uh, that's how public broadcasters operate in most democracies. Um, their content is not controlled by either Harper nor Trudeau right now. Uh, but it doesn't matter because it just gets people riled up and that's all they really want. And notice that there never is a solution. Um, they will tell you that you should be angry, angry at something, but they will never tell you how they will solve it. Um, because it is it is rising to power. It's easier to get people aroused with negativity uh, than it is to get people to follow you on policy and ideas and plans and aspirations. Um, you need more time uh, to to explain those concepts uh, to get people peed off. You know, uh, they, they it's easy to tap into that, uh, and people are likely to say, "Yeah." Um, so. You know, and and so, so they always claim that there are elites, and and elites is anybody who has any education or any expertise in anything. Um, you know, if if, and it's odd because when they get sick, they actually go and see doctors. I imagine when their car breaks down, they go and see a mechanic. I don't, I don't know if Danielle Smith actually does go to see a doctor. <laughs> well, some of them, some of them 
maybe don't. But the fact is that we all have certain expertise, either from education or experience, and then we turn to those experts. When my car breaks down, I go to a car mechanic, you know, uh, and, and, and it goes with, with any type of expertise. But th this movement is against expertise because those are elites, because those are the people who are always telling you what to do. Uh, you know, your teacher was telling you what to do by the virtue of the fact that he or she were a teacher. Um, and, and they're starting to sort of um, tap into this pent up resentment of authority. Uh, why should you be telling me what to do? And it's sort of a form of libertarianism. But the problem is, you know, the odd part, libertarians who are against government are running for government to form a government to argue that there shouldn't be a government. You know, it's, 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 it's as bizarre as it gets. But unfortunately, this formula has proven itself to be quite effective. Yeah, it blows my mind. I mean, you, you talked about people buying it despite all evidence to the contrary. And I remember when I saw Kenny uh, first quite literally roll onto the scene with his, his pickup truck and my first immediate reaction was like, oh, it's a new truck that is right there. Uh, like, this is this guy doesn't drive this truck, and he demonstrated down the road that he had some difficulties fueling it. But people still, I had conversations with people in 2019 who were saying, I, he drives a Dodge, he's just like me. And it's like, you buy that. <laughs> I know. And, and see, the Kenny, interesting, because I, you know, I, I met Kenny in Ottawa a number of times. Uh, there's a different Kenny in Ottawa. Uh, Kenny in Ottawa not only dresses differently, he wears suits like everybody else in Ottawa, but if you ever listen to Kenny speak in Ottawa, he actually uses a different language, um, more business-like language. He's not trying to sort of, um, you know, fewer platitudes. And, and, you know, he over here, he's a good country kind of a guy, always from Alberta. Uh, well, hey, he's not from Alberta. And, and there, so there, there were two Kennys. You know, and good on him. <clears throat> he was able to um, um, reposition himself, reinvent himself, um, and and shame on us that we as Albertans are you know are buying it. Um, but you know, we're, we're not very um, discriminating when it comes to voting. You know, you look who became the leader of the UCP party right now. Um, I cannot imagine a few years ago to to have someone run for office. Um, who knows so little um, about the office that she's running for that she honestly thinks that she can dispense immunities and, and that her powers are the same as of a governor in the United States. You know, uh, learning the very basics on the job that, that actually grade six curriculum covers in, in, in the province of Alberta and, and the fact that she was actually a leader of an opposition. She was in the legislature for a while, so she had an opportunity to at least learn from watching Obviously, none of that sunk in, and yet it didn't seem to matter. Uh, frankly, I think some of her supporters like the fact that she knows little. Uh, the less she knows and the less she, the less she appears to be part of the machine. Um, so ignorance is, is actually a good thing. I wanted to, I mean, there's, there's two, you gave me two things that I want to kind of branch off there. The first one is you, you, you talked about Kenny's ability to, play to different audiences, I'll say. And, and Daniel Smith certainly seems to have that same ability. Where do you think the line is between being able to, I'll say, speak the language of your constituents and manipulating the, the constituents that you're speaking the language of to make them believe that you're something that you're not? 
Yeah, you, you know what? And, and that's, a, that's a very important distinction. I think in politics, like in any public uh, communicating um, role that you would have in any other profession, it is important to be able to read your audience and tap into them uh, to send the same message. So if you're speaking to a grade six class and you're speaking to a, a postgraduate university class, even though you're conveying the same uh, subject matter, you will speak to them differently. You, you will use different vocabulary, use different anecdotes or, or, or examples, but you are always sending the same message. You're just adjusting the language and the level, the technicality to 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 age or, or or whatever it may be specific. With Kenny, and that's genuine, and that and that that is the right thing to do to be effective. With, with Kenny, unfortunately, he was selling himself as a totally different person. You know, frankly, I don't know if there is anyone who knows the real Jason Kenny. He's a very complicated man um, who who spent his entire life in, in an elected office. Um, you know, from 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 childhood was involved hundred uh, percent of his time in politics. Uh, that's very unique, um, and, and I don't think it's a good thing. Uh, I, I think we need politicians that reflect all of us. We need politicians that have real life experience. Uh, we need politicians that wake up in the middle of the night because they have a crying baby, and they have a sick mom, and they have a, 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 a family issues. Um, you know, and, and they worked in different industries, in different careers prior, then you bring that wealth of your personal lived experience to the legislature um, and, and you can better relate with constituents and you can draft better laws. Um, unfortunately, and, and this is very unique, and I'll touch upon that word, to the conservative movement, um, they tend to have in their folds uh, a lot of predominantly young men, although there are some women, but predominantly young men um, who, instead of chasing uh, dates in high school and trying out for a soccer or football team uh, and getting themselves in a little bit of mischief like all of us did, they become these political hacks and they work in ministers and MLAs and MPs offices at the age of 16, which to me is always, I thought, of a little unnatural. Uh, and then they grow into into volunteers and they run for office. You know, in St. Albert, Michael Cooper is, is, a, is a prime example of, of one. Uh, uh, Jason Kenney was one. Uh, Stephen Harper was one. Polyev was one. You know, there's a, there's a, a whole list of them um, that sort of lived that political life almost exclusively um, and lack in, in a lot of social skills and, and other transferable skills that would actually serve them well. In, in politics later. It's fascinating to me that you, you talk about the lack of social skills. I'm not going to say which one, but one of them might have definitely blocked the show after their Christmas message, which appeared to be delivered by an animatronic version of themselves. It's fascinating to me how somebody can exist in that political environment where... Well, I, I'll tell you who it is because he, he threatens me with lawsuits all the time. That's my MP, uh, Michael Cooper. Uh, you know, th there, is, there is an interesting character. Um, St. Albert has a, has a NDP MLA, uh, but yet elects Michael Cooper to the federal government. And here is a guy who has unprecedented um, achievement, let's call it, to have for a first time in the history of the House of Commons, his speech removed from the official record of the House of Commons from the Hansard 
because he was actually reading out the mass murderers from New Zealand manifesto. Um, so all the other members of parliament decided we can't have this in Canada's official record and they removed that. Now, here's a guy who refers to Muslims as the goat herding uh, culture. And, and his list goes on and on and on, but he keeps getting reelected uh, in, in St. Albert in a, in a riding that provincially elects NDP MLAs. Um, so there is, there is this disconnection. You know, there is a lot of people will simply vote federally uh, for, for conservative, no matter who runs. And, and unfortunately, and I don't know, maybe as an educator and former minister of, of education, maybe I failed, we somehow don't get our young people to, um, to, to learn um, and, and absorb uh, the importance of, of researching your candidates and becoming very dis discriminate voters. Um, you know, if guys like Michael Cooper can get elected, you know, frankly, honestly, anybody can get elected. You know, if you can have a person become a premier of our province who today on Holocaust Memorial Day appoints an anti-Semite, and not that she didn't know because they disqualified him from running for the UPC because he's an anti-Semite, she appoints him on Holocaust Memorial Day to what? To the uh, Multiculturalism Advisory Council. You know, that is so crazy. Um, that you can't even believe that it is true. But, but when people who get elected simply because they run against the very idea of government get elected, that's what they do. I was stunned with the, I mean, Mr. Khan did quit today, but I was stunned, quite frankly, that Danielle Smith, anyone in a leadership position would, would let that person quit. I mean, it, it, especially given that today we're recording this on April uh, 17th, um, especially given that today is Holocaust Memorial Day, that to me would be a day where you would want to make it absolutely clear, nuh-uh, I won't tolerate this stuff, um, even if it was just a performance, because very clearly they did know who the, what Mr. Khan's history was, because they're the ones who investigated it. Um, I found it particularly bold of them to try to claim that they didn't know when the person who was standing next to Danielle Smith was during that whole presentation. One of them was Rajan Sani and she's the person that was nominated in the constituency that he was disqualified from. So there's no way like it just, there's just no way, but there seems to be this culture of, they don't care. They just don't care. They no. just don't care. That's the thing They you know, uh, they, they feel they're invincible. They, they think they have their numbers um, and they don't care, and they know that their uh, their core support has has no issue with that. You know, uh, uh, you know, uh, Trump said that he said I can shoot somebody right in the middle of I think it was Broadway Avenue in New York, and I will get reelected the next day. It is that attitude. We're invincible. Our masses love us, and and we can do whatever we want with impunity. You know, this whole issue with Danielle Smith and and Crown Prosecutor. Um, you know, that few years ago would have been enough for a premier to resign um, because the party would make that premier resign as a leader of the party. Uh, there, there is no way. You know, um, I know that that uh, people don't have fond memories of um, of Alison Redford. And I was one of the ones in caucus who asked her to resign. But it was caucus that wanted her to resign. She was pushed out internally 
and frankly, her errors um, and 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 sins pale in comparison to to what Danielle Smith will do in just one day. Uh, but but you know the, the 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 scope of what was unacceptable then, and what for what party would push out a leader, um, don't apply anymore. You know, uh, there's just no way that with her track record of what she has pulled off, because there's no better way of calling it, uh, from the day she walked into the premier's office till today, that she would be a leader of any credible political party, particularly governing party. Um, in this country, just a decade ago, I want to. I want to. We're going to. We're going to focus in on Smith now. So I want to. You sat in the legislature at the same time that Danielle Smith sat in the legislature. Correct me if I'm wrong. Correct. I mean, you you kind of talked about it earlier. One of the things that I know that I've been saying, and that I know there's no shortage of other pundits and commentators who have been saying, is how in the hell did she serve in government for as long as she did and not pick up any of this stuff? And when you watch some of the the video of her in the legislature, it seems like it's almost an entirely different person because she is making arguments that at the very least seem marginally cogent. But... You compare that to, like, how does she know so little? Is that what you saw in the legislature in your time with her? Was she just performing or was it? So, so you know, it's easy because uh, she's a news anchor. That's what she is. And I have to be careful what I say because I happen to be married to one. Um, but reading a teleprompter, leading, reading a teleprompter is very different than making those decisions about which you're reading off the teleprompter. Um, so Danielle Smith would show up in question period with three questions pre-written. And she would have rehearsed them because you can tell I've been around long enough just watching how she stands up and how she, you know, um, the, the intonation of her voice and how she asked the question. But she would ask three, three questions. And it didn't matter what I answered as an answer, her Second and third uh, questions would be exactly the same. And, and that's all she really had to do, read questions. Um, when we noticed that the moment she was put in a position where she has to start thinking and making decisions on the go um, and, and analyzing information, she fails. And, and that was hosting of the radio show in Calgary. The moment you gave her a microphone and no script where she had to interact with callers and and express her own opinions, the show had to can her because she was getting herself into a lot of trouble um, and, and getting the radio station into a lot of trouble. So couldn't do it. Now, as a premier, you answer questions. You don't know what those questions will be. Media throws questions at you. And you have to have at least fundamental understanding of government and your portfolio. And as a premier or deputy premier, all portfolios, that you can answer any question that's thrown at you. And even if you don't know the answer, you know enough to figure out what the answer likely would be. She's lacking that skill because she doesn't have the fundamental understanding uh, of what you know of, of what the answer would be. It's like getting a an, an actor off a script of General Hospital and putting him into a surgical room and say, you play the doctor, now be the doctor. <laughs> Two different things. She played the doctor. She doesn't know how to be one. She pretended to be a premier. She doesn't know how to be one because, and, you know, sometimes I honestly feel bad for her because it, it just can't be easy when people are throwing questions at you and you don't even have a fundamental understanding of what you're talking about. 
you know, I was lucky. Ralph Klein had a system. When you first got appointed as an MLA, he watched his MLAs. And if, if he thought you had potential to be in cabinet one day, he would assign you to a senior cabinet minister. Um, so one day he tapped me on the shoulder and said, you will be following Clint Dunford. And, and that was my minister. And I lived his life. I, I was following him for a long, long time. And you learn and you absorb. Then he would give you chairmanship of a committee. Then he will give you a parliamentary uh, assistant position. By the time you got to cabinet, you knew how the system works. And even if you didn't know, you had an intuitive understanding of what the right or wrong answer would be or when to shut up and not say anything. Um, she doesn't have that. You give her a microphone, you ask her a question, she'll give you an answer. It could be the, the stupidest answer in the world, but she'll give you an answer. And, and, and you know, it became most evident with this crime prosecutor thing. You know, first she comes out and she reads off a note from a lawyer. Her advice wasn't correct, but fine, she stuck with it. But a day later, she goes on a radio show and she, she starts talking about it. And then she comes out again and says, no, I can't talk about it. And, and you start wondering, um, you know, th does this woman know what she's doing? Uh, the problem is that the office of a premier is a very powerful office in this, in this country. Uh, premiers can make unilateral decisions. Uh, premiers can jeopardize our relationships, not only within the province, but within the country and particularly internationally. I'm wondering, you know, UCP likes to drive this message that they're good for business and investment. What do you think investors who are watching us like hawks, large companies, they watch every province like hawks, what are they thinking about this political climate? Uh, if you are a large American or European or Asian company and you are contemplating investing in this province, would you invest in a province where you have no clue what the premier will do tomorrow? Uh, where there is even no pattern. You know, some premiers, they, they could be somewhat radical, but at least they follow some script, some narrative. You can sort of predict what they will do next. With her, it's hard to predict. You give her a microphone and she can put you out of business tomorrow. It's, I mean, it's, I even just the recent press conference that she did where she was asked uh, as she was... <laughs> And again, like I just, it, it baffles me who's doing the messaging, who's crafting the, the messaging, because Danielle Smith says, you know what, I'm going to make a, a commitment to public health care. I'm going to do it in front of a fee for service health care facility. And then when I'm asked about the ethics commissioner, I'm going to refer journalists to the ethics commissioner's office. Even if you go to the front page of the ethics commissioner's website, it very clearly says no questions um, and, and that she can't answer them. Like it was just I, I, I honestly can't wrap my head around how nobody's because she's so good with the script and she really is like uh, I've been saying for for months now, the, the the biggest difference between Daniel Smith and Rachel Notley from a, a communications perspective is when Rachel Notley's on script, she sounds like she's talking to kindergarten students. When she's off script, she's something else. And Daniel Smith is the exact inverse. When she's on script, she's incredibly well spoken. She reads news well. Yeah, but as soon as you ask her for like an independent thought, she'll just be like, "I guess I'm making shit up." Well, because she doesn't understand it. She often doesn't understand what she just read. And, and you know, and, and I honestly do feel bad saying that because, you know, she, she's a person. 
um, and, 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 and she has dignity as a, as a human being, and, and I hate to belittle her, but the fact is that I would not do well in a car mechanic shop. Not what I'm good at. I would not do well in a hospital. Not what I'm good at. And, and, and I know what I don't know, and I will not put myself in that place and, and embarrass myself. Unfortunately, uh, she either has been put into that position by, by, by insincere friends who, who advised her to do it, uh, or, or simply her ego was bigger um, than it should have been. And she put herself in a position where she doesn't even understand what she reads, because often she will extrapolate on something she read. And, and you know, her handlers must be thinking, shut up. Don't say a word. Just read what we wrote you and you'll be just fine. You know, they will be well served to send her on a holiday now for the next two months, keep her out of the province. And, and I think their chances would improve dramatically. Um, but that's what happens. It's dangerous. You know, we, we had a little bit of that problem with Ralph Klein sometimes. I always like to juxtapose Ralph Klein and Ed Stelmach. Uh, when, when Stelmach was my premier, it was scary because he knew all of our portfolios to detail. And in caucus as a minister, I could never BS him uh, because he sort of knew what goes on in my portfolio. With Ralph Klein, Ralph, Ralph Klein was an early version, less dangerous or not dangerous version of a populist. Uh, he was selling the message well. People sort of liked him, but he had no clue about policy. Uh, I remember as a newly elected MLA in, in 2001, we were sitting one of my first caucus meetings and some minister was was explaining something and Ralph was asking questions. And I thought to myself, okay, he's playing a game. He's asking those questions to see if the minister knows the answer, but he's a premier. He must know the answer. He sure as hell did not know the answer. Ralph Klein was not a policy guy. So for us as elected members with Ralph Klein, we always hoped um, that he would not go on a tangent with the media. Uh, just stick to your script and, and stay there. Now, Danielle is is hundred times worse because Ralph knew what he didn't know and Ralph relied on his ministers and advisors. She doesn't. She just sort of makes up policy on the fly. I think we saw that with her, her whole, we'll just deputize ambassadors of vacationing Albertans to get around the American travel restrictions. That was, I mean, it's just, there's, there's, there's so it's, it's, it's just very fertile ground. I'll say, um, that kind of brings us up to where we are now, I think, a little bit. And, you know, this weekend, uh, this past weekend, you, you definitely raised some eyebrows because you, you definitely have been a, you, you haven't held your criticism when it comes to the, the UCP. You haven't held your criticism when it comes to Danielle Smith. But I think that you, in many ways, embodied the, the the shifts that we've seen within the political spectrum. The UCP have moved farther and farther and farther to the right, I would argue, past the Wild Rose at this point. Uh, and with that, the NDP have moved a little bit more to the, the right, more century, century lefty, but they're definitely more more right than they used to be. And that seems to be appealing to some folks, yourself included. I, what... What made the decision for you? What sealed the deal to get off the bench? Well, a few things, you know, uh, just, to, just to, before I answer that question, uh, you know, even Danielle Smith, she probably regrets saying it, like she regrets saying everything she said yesterday. But one of the things she said is that Premier Lockheed and Rachel Notley govern the same way. They're exactly the same. 
um, and she was referring to him as a socialist. So they are so far to the right um, that guys like Lockheed, um, they refer to them as socialists. Um, what, what made the difference? Um, you know, NDP is not my flavor either. Uh, you know, uh, I have epic battles with Rachel Notley and Brian Mason in, in the legislature um, because we disagreed on approaches and policies um, and, and, and matters of that nature. But I can tell you one thing, um, both with Rachel and with Brian and, and several other NDP uh, MLAs that were there, a uh, couple are still, still elected, um, there was mutual respect. Um, they knew their stuff. Rachel knows policy. She knows governance. She knows law. Uh, she knows intergovernmental relations like nobody's business. So when we argued, uh, it was uh, a, a well-versed argument. It, it, was, it was based on facts and nobody could BS the other one because you knew that they would call you on it if you tried. So that was important. It was facts, knowledge, research-based you know, arguments and development of policy. Uh, second thing was there was trust. Um, often as, as a deputy premier, I would sit down with Rachel or with Brian Mason and say, look, let's hammer this out. Uh, we can end this session early. Uh, what is it that you're looking for? Um, you would make deals on off the record basis and trust was never breached. When you made a deal, you made a deal and they honored that deal. Uh, so that was important. And in the second, uh, during the committee stage of a, of a passing of a bill in the House, MLAs get to sit anywhere they want in the chamber. They don't have to sit in their own seat. Uh, I would always make a point to go across and sit down with some opposition member just to ask them how are things in their writing. And when you discuss things with, with Rachel, um, I was always satisfied that, that she's doing what she's doing with noble intentions for her constituents and for the province. We may differ on how we want to get there, but I never, ever questioned her motivations. It wasn't because some lobbyist is lobbying her uh, or some friend of a friend or family member. <clears throat> she always had good policy reason for why she was asking for what she was asking. I could never say that about Danielle Smith. As I said earlier, you know, and I had the unfortunate position. Redford um, was and I'm being very, this will be the understatement of the year, was not fond of Danielle Smith. So when Danielle Smith was in question period, Redford would absent herself, which means meant that I had to field all the questions. She just refused to answer Danielle Smith's questions. Um, so like I said earlier, Danielle Smith would read a question which was definitely written for her. Um, but you knew that she didn't know the substance. And when you try to answer the question, often a good MLA like Rachel or, or Brian Mason or, 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 or many others, they would adjust their second question to accommodate your answer and sort of build on that answer and, and maybe try to nail you even harder. She wouldn't. She would just read the next question, uh, which so often she would read three questions, which I already answered in the first answer. And she would still read the same questions because she had nothing else. That's what they wrote her. That's what she read. But during debate, when, when it is a little bit free scripted, you know, that's when you really get the real side of an MLA. Of an MLA. When, when you have a leader of the opposition who is in the House reading speeches from a piece of paper, 
and never puts the paper down and just sort of goes on a tangent and talks about her own experience or or, or her constituents. And, and, and uh, you know that this is a scripted um, leader of the opposition. And But the biggest part is trust. And when she crossed the floor, um, two PCs, and she will still deny it, but she can't deny it because there are those of individuals like myself who are still alive to know that she made a deal with Prentice for cabinet. She made a deal for herself and for Rob Anderson and a couple others to get cabinet positions. Uh, unfortunately for our PC caucus, there was a rebellion inside of our PC caucus. We said, not a chance in hell. Prentice said, well, too late. I already asked them to cross the floor. Danielle actually is upstairs in the government house waiting to walk down the stairs with me to a media announcement, but he pulled the cabinet appointments. So Danielle sold out her own party for her own political gain to get into cabinet. And to me, that's a no-no. First of all, to me, floor crossing is a no. Frankly, it should be illegal. Um, But second of all, if you're floor crossing because you cooked up a deal for yourself to sit in the cabinet, um, I find that I find that despicable. That's a betrayal of, of the process. It's a betrayal of your constituents. It's a betrayal of your colleagues in caucus, because not all floor crosses were going to get cabinet positions. Only herself and a couple others. So, so that was a a, a terrible uh, betrayal in my mind. Um, so I can't trust her, and I never will trust her. Um, and I know for a fact that she simply does not have. Um, the capacity uh, to to serve as a premier. So why did I make the decision? Boy, that was a long answer. Um, I'm lending my vote to NDP. I'm not giving it to them. They won't have it forever. They may not have it in the subsequent election. But I'm looking at what is good for this province, what is good for my girls, my daughters, um, what is good for you and me uh, in this province. And even though I don't always agree with everything Rachel does, And even though I think she made some mistakes when she was a premier, I think her mistakes are not as detrimental ever as the damage that Danielle Smith is doing and will do to our province if she becomes the premier. You know, uh, some of the errors that, you know, and and yes, Rachel made mistakes at the very beginning. She, She had a caucus of newbies. No one has ever been elected before. And she had to build a cabinet out of that. Uh, and she found out she's going to be a premier about two weeks prior to becoming a premier. Uh, and oil prices dropped. So, yeah, she made some mistakes up front. But I can tell you the, the last two years um, of her premiership, uh, many of my colleagues and I uh, from, from the PC caucus discussed, we said we would probably make the same decision. We would probably govern the same way. She she was, she was became a, a very well-versed center lane um, uh, premier making decisions that were, you know, that were sort of evidence-based. So if anybody is concerned about Rachel causing damage, I'll tell you, first of all, the magnitude of damage um, compared to Danielle Smith is simply not comparable. But the kind of mistakes that Rachel makes are easily fixed. You adjust the policy, reverse the policy. Unfortunately, Danielle um, is causing damage to our democratic institutions, which in some cases may be irreparable. Uh, once people lose faith and confidence in justice, once people lose confidence in the legislature and how laws are passed in this country, once people lose confidence in law enforcement, 
there may be no turning back and and we can't afford to put ourselves in that position so to me this is existential this election really is existential and and i feel that for the good of the province i am with very easy conscience um saying i am endorsing ndp and rachel uh, and then we'll see what happens after come next election maybe some centrist party will evolve uh, frankly you know ndp has moved pretty close to, to what the new center is um i don't know but um you know sometimes um in, in my position you have to hold your nose a little um, but I can do this and I know I'm doing the right thing. So I'm encouraging all other, you know, PC supporters, take a look. Is this, is this where you see yourself? Does this remind you of, 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 um, Lockheed, of Getty, of, uh, of Ralph Klein, of Stelmach, of Redford, of Prentice, of Hancock? No, uh, this is, this is not even remotely similar to what PC party used to be. Um, so how can you possibly vote for it? Um, I say to you, either spoil your ballot, if, if that's the best that you can do, uh, or give um, give Rachel a, a shot and, and simply lend your vote to her. Don't give it to her, lend it to her. But, but for our province, that's the right thing to do right now. And I think it's an interesting point that you raised there. With I like the the language of of lending there. That's very well crafted, um, because I think that there's a lot of people who have a, a fear of well, if we go for this other party. I mean, Alberta is uh, I. It's well known. I have a history with the Alberta Party. Um, and, you know, in a perfect world, I'd love to see multiple parties represented in the legislature, but that's just not where we are right now. Um, it, there's even lending a vote or, as you said, spoiling a ballot doesn't mean that you can no longer hold the the next government to account, because at least we know that by the established rules and the accepted norms, the NDP will play by those, whereas We've also clearly seen that the UCP, particularly under Daniel Smith, they don't even know what those rules are. And even if they did, it seems very clear that they don't want to play with them. And but they defy the rules. Look, Jason Kenney was investigated by, by uh, the elections commissioner. He dissolved the commissioner's office right in the middle of being investigated by him. Right. So you're right. You, you know, at least you will have a mechanism by which you can hold the government to account and the fact is that you know that that Rachel has reverence and respect for democratic institutions. So, so even if you don't like some of her decisions, uh, th- there is a way of of addressing that issue, and she will play by by well established rules. Um, and and if you really worry about economy, uh, you have to ask yourself what does this ongoing instability do to the investment climate in, in our province. You know, we, we, we are politically the least stable province of all. We used to be the bastion of stability. You know, that is why people voted for 44 years uh, for government. You know, and now I deal in the, in the world of investment. Investors look for two things, return on investment and stability of, of the climate in which they invest. They often will even take a lower return on investment if they know that the investment is stable. Right now, as an Albertan, I would have a very difficult time advising an investor to invest into any sector in this province because I don't honestly know what the premier will say during tomorrow's press conference about that particular industry. You know, that from a a business perspective, if you're looking for stability, 
you're getting exactly the opposite. Uh, but let's put this again into perspective. You know, th this is a government where the premier is now investigated by the ethics commissioner, where the minister of justice is investigated by the law society, where several couple cabinet ministers and several MLAs are investigated by the RCMP uh, for the criminal investigation of the UCP leadership race. You know, th this is your government right now. Now, what message are you sending when you're saying that is fine, we will still re-elect you? It's okay to be under criminal investigation, ethical investigation, professional investigation, and we will still re-elect you. Is this, is this who we are? Is this the best that we can do? Do we deserve that kind of a government? Do we want our children to look up to these individuals and say, son, daughter, this is how you conduct yourself. This is what you get rewarded for in life by behaving like this. You know, this is everything that we as parents tell our kids not to do. Why would we elect a group of people like this into government? I got two other questions that I want to ask you, because ask you, um, you have been extraordinarily generous with your time. Um, but I, I do want to ask these two things because one of them scares me very much and the other one I'm just super curious. Um, I got to warn you in advance. Usually I say two more questions and then there's six. So my apologies <laughs> before that happens. But one of the, the scenarios that I've been playing with that has me particularly alarmed is when we take a look at a lot of the polling that's coming out for the province. You know, some people are saying one seat, some people are saying six seats, but it seems very clear that this is going to be a very close uh, election. And it is battleground Calgary. There's no question about that. The The thing that I'm worried about is that we've got this group called Take Back Alberta who's operating in the background. They're pulling a lot of strings. They take credit for having Kenny removed. They take credit for uh, installing Smith. And the thing that scares me is if this is a super close election, let's say it's a difference of I'm pulling a number out of the ether, six seats. Um if Take Back Alberta has seven MLAs that they've installed and they're not far from that, then the nightmare scenario for me, and this is where I'm hoping you're going to tell me I'm wrong, um, but the nightmare scenario for me is that those seven MLAs can then go to Danielle Smith or whoever the next premier is because, let's be serious, she's going to get eaten alive in no time. Um, but they can go and say, hey, that's a real nice government you've got there. Be a shame if something happened to it. Here's the policies that you're going to be putting forward. We've already written the bills. Here's the script. Go ahead. Is that is that possible? Please tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> I'd love to tell you you're wrong, but you're not wrong. This and 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 that's the problem when a premier becomes beholden uh, to any particular group. Um, when when um, you make a, a pact with the devil, um, you have to live by that pact. And, and, you know, in no uncertain terms, we know uh, that Take Back Alberta was, was pivotal in, in Kenny's demise. Um, and, and Kenny even said himself that the crazies have taken over his party and that's why he's out. He, he knew he had no chance to fight them. Um, they would eat him seat by seat by seat by nomina every nomination. So now you have this group that took over basically the board um, of, of UCP and, and now are winning nominations one by one. And, and, and since they're doing it mostly in rural Alberta, those MLAs are likely to get elected, those candidates. Uh, so they will hold the balance of power. 
and uh, and they will be wielding that power because they have a very clear um, what I think most Albertans would what most Albertans would consider to be a, a radical agenda, and and they are only getting elected to push that particular agenda. So they will do what they have to um, to to draft the legislation and pass the legislation to 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 see their vision come to to fruition. And that's where Danielle Smith is extremely vulnerable right now. Uh, she she now she brought them to the dance and and she has to continue dancing with them. Um, you know, we saw a little bit of that um, in our PC caucus when Stelmac, uh, Premier Stelmac, was was in that uh, chair. Uh, there was a group of of uh, rogue um, right wing um, uh, ministers and MLAs. Uh, one happens to be a member of Parliament right now from Calgary, <clears throat> and they decided that they will hold Stelmac hostage and. Uh, and say we will vote against the budget and spark uh, a vote of non-confidence if you don't do certain things we want you to do. Um, Stelmach decided to resign um, shortly thereafter. But but when you have a group of rogue MLAs that think they hold the balance of power, they become very powerful and very dangerous MLAs. And again, they're they're not answerable to the democratic process. It doesn't matter what the legislature votes. They have the premier. And the premier will do what they want her to do. So, so that's part of the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing is because not only has UCP become, um, you know, it's unfortunate that even that they even have the word conservative in their name, but has become sort of radicalized version of of of, of what used to be conservatism. But now within this radical party, they have a even more so radical subculture of uh, of this take back Alberta. And a premier um, who does who a made a deal with them, so is beholden to them, and b doesn't have the capacity to uh, to push back. That's not great. That wasn't the answer that I was hoping for. I was hoping you were going to say, "Oh no, there's this obscure parliamentary thing that will keep Alberta safe." And those who oppose, uh, you know, uh, Rachel, they say, "Well, what about unions? You know, she has unions. She has to do what unions do." There is a big difference. And and trust me, you know, uh, I had epic battles with unions when I was a minister of labor. Um, I was in charge of all of the collective bargaining. Again, it was done differently. There was respect. We would meet. We would talk. We would negotiate. Um, so there was there was a respectful um, exchange. And and uh, and the labor. There's a labor code in Alberta that governs relationship between government and labor unions. And there's process of appeals for both. So a union can't come to a premier and say, give us a massive pay raise or double our vacations or, or give us. No, it still has to go through a process that is formal. Uh, sure, it helps to have a premier that, that sees eye to eye with you, but but premier doesn't have that authority um, to do that uh, with labor unions. Plus, labor unions are in themselves elected bodies by workers, by Albertans, by Alberta workers that, that choose their executive, who they are. So the process is much more transparent. You may not like it, but it is governed and it is much more transparent. Take Back Alberta is, is, is sort of a dark force. We don't know who they are. We know who the leader is. We have no idea where their money comes from. We hear rumors, uh, but we don't know. Some of them are from British Columbia. Some are criminally charged right now, awaiting trials. And they're pushing an agenda that is not that doesn't have to go through a labor board, that doesn't have to go through any process. They're pushing a social agenda that Premier can unilaterally make happen. 
if squeezed. So there is a big difference between what a relationship between a union and a premier can and cannot do versus uh, dark money and, and, and movements like Take Back Alberta to whom the premier is beholden. Uh, you don't see unions nominating candidates showing up in buses, taking over uh, NDP associations to put their union members in those. It just doesn't happen um, because they they have respect for the process. And they know that even if they did, as I said earlier, they simply cannot make things happen the way these unstructured, not organized, not governed forces can. You know, uh, this, this Take Back Alberta un, un, is doesn't fall under any donation limitations. They're not a political party. Um, they have no auditors. Nobody scrutinizes them. They don't have any of the mechanisms that are in place for any other third-party organization. Yeah. Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> um, I want to end. I knew, I knew it was going to end on a, a I didn't know, but I had a hard feeling that it was going to end on a uh-oh kind of feeling. So I want to, I'm going to do a hard pivot on you here. Um, I'm super curious, and this is, this has almost nothing to do with the, I'm, I think it has nothing to do with the provincial election. Um, the halal financing. What is, what is that? Because it's something that you've been talking about on your, 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 your social media channel, channels quite a bit. And for me, I'm just going to put all my ignorance on display here. You know, I hear halal and I think food. So yeah, you think meat. Exactly. So what is, uh, for our audience, and, and for me as well, <laughs> what, is, what is halal finance? How does it, what well, is, I'm actually what, glad, glad you asked because there's a lot of misunderstandings and I've been going through a massive learning curve, uh, curve for the last number of years. Halal actually means religiously permissible. Okay? It's just like kosher for Jews. Um, so it means religiously permissible. And even though we mostly associate it with food because we see it at restaurants and at, uh, at Costco on, on beef uh, and, and other and chicken, um, that means it's okay to eat it because it's permissible. Now, uh, is, for me, it's serendipity. I was approached by the Muslim community to, to see if I can solve their problem. But Roman Catholics, believe it or not, used to be in the same predicament many, many, many years ago. And actually, it's that predicament that was part of the reason why anti-Semitism began in Europe. And it was that Catholics then, just like Muslims now, could not go to conventional banks and borrow money and could not lend money with interest because interest both in Islam and long time ago in Catholicism was considered to be usury. I'm not providing you with any service. All I'm doing is taking advantage of the fact that I have money and you don't. So I'm charging you for using my money. Uh, and that's considered usury and it's unethical and it's, it's taking advantage of a person. Catholics got rid of it. Um, because Catholics couldn't open banks, Catholics couldn't do a lot of enterprise, uh, and, and Jews could. Uh, Muslims held on to it. So pious Muslims, uh, which, which is by far majority, cannot go to a conventional bank and get a mortgage because A, there is interest involved. B, the money that banks lend is commingled often with investments that are not well aligned with Islam. So banks will invest in anything that will give them a profit, cannabis, alcohol, pork plants, you name it. A lot of those things 
are considered to be sinful uh, to Muslims. So they don't want to deal with money that also um, yielded from, from that those kinds of investments. And they don't want their mortgage payback as they're paying it back to be invested into those things either. Um, so there are two, two big barriers. Number three, in Islamic contracts, a contract is considered on, honorable only when it's between two parties. Banks often use insurance companies or CMHC. There are third parties involved. And, and um, uh, in Islam, that is considered to be not a proper form of contract. So I was approached uh, a few years ago to see if there is a way of setting up a system in Canada that would meet all the requirements of, of Islamic contracts and religious limitations, but also be enforceable in Canadian courts in case something ever went wrong so they can go to court and sue just like anybody. Um, so I took that upon myself and I put together a team of lawyers from across Canada and uh, Islamic finance scholars from across the world. And for about three years, uh, contracts were flying back and forth, back and forth. We were trying to hammer out contracts that are both Sharia law compliant, halal, and also enforceable in Canadian courts. And, and we nailed it down. And then the next thing was, can you now implement it? So again, took time to to find investment uh, portfolios that will invest into this. And now my my colleague, uh, John Stainton, and I, we, we own Canadian Halal Financial Corporation, and we give mortgages to Muslims across Alberta, and we're hoping to go across Canada shortly. How do you make money doing that? Like, how is that, how does the return on investment work? Because that's, like, as you were talking, I was like, okay, I think I follow all of it, but how does that translate into, and so it's worth doing? Yeah. So, yeah, it's a business. It's for profit, obviously. So, I Islam really is very practical when it comes to business. Uh, Islam is not saying that you can't make profit. Just don't charge interest. Don't calculate it as interest. And, and I often compare it to halal meat, you know. Um, you can have a, a, a barbecue, a steak that one is halal and one isn't. And if you tried them both, they taste exactly the same because the two cows were in the same pasture, eating grass side by side, except they got killed differently. Yeah. Different process, right? But the steak is the same. Same thing really happens with finance. We simply do different accounting. None of our accounting is interest-based. So what we do is cost plus profit. So uh, Islam allows for us to make a modest profit. So we make a modest profit, and then we're allowed to pass the true cost flow through onto our clients. So we have to pay dividends for investments. I, we have offices, we have staff. Uh, those costs we can pass onto our clients so they can bear costs. So they pay cost plus profit, and that's how it's calculated, and that's uh, and that's how uh, it is divided. Whereas when you borrow money from a bank, they say 6% interest rate. You don't know what's cost, what's profit. That's that's the going rate. Um, we we don't guide ourselves by that. So some people may say it's semantics, but so is halal meat. You know, all religions are semantics, um, but that's what's important. That's faith. Um, but the, the real challenge was putting together those contracts that they meet both Canadian legal and those requirements. And it's really good for Canada because most of these Muslim clients that we have, and we have hundreds of them already, used to be renters. Um, they would pay horrendous rent, rent entire houses, but simply could not go to a bank and had to save cash until they could buy a house cash. And you know what that would be like. Every time you think you have enough money, prices of houses go up. So you never 
quite save enough. Now they they just provide a down payment and, and they can finance a house just like you and I. So it's good for home builders. It's good for renovation companies. It's good for everybody. And, and from my perspective, there's a little bit of social justice to it because, you know, there's really no reason why a large segment of Canadian population shouldn't have access to mortgages. You know, why, why can't they have homes to, if there is a, a workable solution that can be found? So that's, that's exactly what we do. We, we are looking at expanding into student loans and, and other form of, forms of loans, car loans, uh, so that they can fully participate in our Canadian economy. And our clients by far are born in Canada, very well educated. We have medical doctors and others who are our clients and they simply, because they, they have faith, they, they choose not to go to a bank. Now they have an option. That's cool. Thank you so much for walking me through that because I've been watching it and uh, super, super curious. And I, I'm not too ashamed to say that uh, a little bit too timid to ask the question on social media because. Yeah, and you shouldn't. You shouldn't. No, the, you know, those questions are not taboo. And, um, you know, there, there is another another issue in Canada. And, and, and now I don't have the capacity to address that because we're so overwhelmed with this halal. But, you know, most Canadians don't know that First Nations who live on reserves can't get a mortgage either. Because they don't own the land on which they would build a house. So there is no collateral. There is no asset. So many of our First Nations are disadvantaged, even if they wanted to build a house on reserve and, and pay it off. They have great jobs in an oil field and everywhere else. They can't get a mortgage. So there is another problem that needs to be addressed. But <clears throat> those are quirky things that most of us don't know about. And, and you know, I found that really surprising because I represented Castle Downs for, for 14 years. And the oldest, the first mosque in Canada, the Al-Rashid Mosque, is, is just next to Castle Downs Riding. And, and nobody was sort of raising that as an issue. Muslims almost were conditioned to accepting the fact that they will never own a house. Um, whereas in other Commonwealth countries like New Zealand, UK, Australia, uh, Islamic banks have been formed. And so that's exactly what we're doing right now. It just no one has done it before in Canada. And I don't know why. Okay. I got one more question. See, I told you I was going to do it. I'm going to do it. Go for it. You... How many different premiers did you work with? Let's count them. Uh, five, I think. Uh, Ralph Klein, uh, Ed Stelmack, uh, Alison Redford, uh, uh, David Hancock, and then Prentice for a few months. Five. Would any of those premiers have taken an unmoderated call from Archer Pulowski? None. I can tell you that right now, none. Uh, frankly, I cannot think of any premier or cabinet minister that I know. You know, um, Rick McIver, uh, when he was running for leadership against uh, uh, Prentice and myself, got himself in trouble with Pavlovsky. Uh, he, uh, in Calgary, participated in an annual March for Jesus uh, that Pavlovsky was organizing. And and I, I like to give Rick... Uh, a benefit of doubt. He probably did not know how crazy Pavlovsky was and what this march was all about. Rick is a devout Christian, so he probably thought it was a Christian thing to do. Uh, so so I, I think we can let him off the hook. But Danielle knew exactly who Pavlovsky is. So she listened to his speeches. You know, this guy, this guy was saying, we will fight the police until we die. He was, he was, you know, advocating uh, um, murder. I'm sorry. He said, let's make it our Alamo. Let's make it our Alamo. Exactly. So, no, you know, I can tell you as a premier and as a deputy premier, frankly, you don't just take calls. 
there is a whole, again, she doesn't understand the protocol. So she probably picks up her cell phone and she dials and I bet you it's not even a blocked number. So somebody can call her back as a premier, as a minister, but particularly as a premier and deputy premier, phone calls are scheduled uh, through staff. They're vetted. And you usually get a either verbal or written briefing saying, Premier, at uh, 12.05, you have a five-minute call scheduled with so-and-so. This is who they are. And this is what likely they may ask you because the bureaucracy will do research. They'll check who the person is and what their issues are. What is it that they will raise? So you can sort of mentally prepare yourself for that phone call. Uh, you don't just pick up a phone and call somebody, you would never, ever call somebody who has been criminally charged or is awaiting trial or sentencing. You know, those are just just obvious no-nos. And you don't engage in that long of a conversation either. I have to tell you, the life of a premier um, is hectic. You know, five-minute call is a long call. Uh, You take a five-minute call, you the courtesies, and then you say, good talking to you. I appreciate what you're saying. I will let my deputy minister or my minister or my chief of staff take up this issue with you. And I hope that you can resolve it and you remove yourself from it. You know, premiers and and deputy premiers and and even cabinet ministers don't have the capacity um, and and the ability to to resolve minutia of issues. That's what what the bureaucracy is for. That's where the knowledge base is. uh, And you heavily rely on that. Um, this was a very bizarre, bizarre phone call. But again, you know, that, 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 that same thing. You play with Take Back Alberta, you're stuck with them. You play with Pavlovsky, now she's stuck with him. You know, she made him promises. Um, and and he, um, he is going to hold her to it. That's what I thought your answer was going to be, but I just figured I'd double check. Um, Thomas, it feels weird to call you Thomas. It just does. Call me Thomas. Um, <laughs> This honorable thing is 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 is, is funny. It, it's actually very nice that they allowed us to carry the titles uh, 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 in posterity, uh, because that's what happens in 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 most Commonwealth countries. But uh, no, use it judiciously. And now you know. Now I think as we're watching this 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 circus, uh, pretty soon, um, I think Albertans will doubt if any politicians are honorable, and that's unfortunate. You know, and that's unfortunate. Somebody actually said on Twitter. We should remove that title honorable. And I said, that's when they win. No, start voting for people who actually are honorable. And you won't have that problem. Raise the bar, don't lower it. That's right. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. I really, I just, I'm just so tickled that you agreed to do this and and that we had the conversation that we did. So thank you so much again. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Keep up the great work. I enjoy your podcast. Oh, thank you. As always, if you appreciate the kind of content that we're trying to produce here at The Breakdown, we would love it if you swung by our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash thebreakdownab and signed up for a small monthly sponsorship of the work that we're trying to do here. It is because of the support that we receive from our Patreon sponsors that we're able to continually up our game, and it is tremendously appreciated. So I want to throw a big thank you out to them. And you can go ahead and visit that website and join and support us as well because we need all the help we can get. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of these important conversations. And we will see you next time on The Breakdown.